So here we are in the third week of the Apostles' Creed. And once again, I want to remind you that the Apostles' Creed helps to establish the boundaries of faith that separate orthodoxy from heresy and emphasizes for us to believe is to belong. We are capturing that communal voice of the church that reminds us that we are a part of community that actually transcends place and time. It's not merely a summary of Christian teaching, but it is also a solemn pledge of allegiance to the living God who is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And today, what we're going to consider is God the Father Almighty. Notice that it says Father Almighty two times in the creed. Now, what's peculiar about this is that if we were to go to the next slide... There are two verses that I want to share with you that, that show you the contrast of how strange these two words are together. God the Father Almighty. Now, if we were to begin with Isaiah 45, 7, we can see that, that word Almighty being played out in what is said in Isaiah 45, 7, which Almighty means all power, all authority. It connects really the concept of omnipotence with sovereignty, which is God's authority and freedom to accomplish all that he wills to accomplish. And in Isaiah 45, 7, it says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And if we were to just take that verse out of context, which in, the, in its proper context is God is judging his people for their rebellion against their covenant with him as a covenantal God. But just to look at that, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable verse. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. It, it sort of gives for us the most general basic definition of all power, which is that he has the power to do what he wants to do. Total, absolute power. But when we contrast it next to 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God we immediately find ourselves asking, are we talking about the same God here? A God who creates darkness and forms light, who brings well-being and creates calamity? I, the Lord, do all these things. See what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us. Notice, notice this. In the creed, what comes first? It's not a trick question. It's Father. In the scriptures, what comes first? Almighty. But the creed works backwards from the full revelation. That is, that the, that the church fathers, in creating this creed from the scriptures, recognize that in order to be, to be true to the scriptures, you need to work from the revelation that has been revealed. And God, at various times, who spoke through the prophets and through the scriptures, has in these last days given his, his final word through his Son. In other words, we begin with the fatherhood of God revealed through the person of Jesus. And it is through that fatherhood that we can begin to understand what it means that God is almighty, that God is omnipotent, and that he is sovereign. Now, let me just begin by giving you a little background on the problem with understanding God's power. Because church theology has continued to be influenced by a philosophy that was very prevalent in the 3rd to 6th century called Neoplatonism. Uh, in fact, many of the church's patristic fathers, in trying to work out a systematic theology of the scriptures, trying to work out concepts like the Trinity, uh, leaned into Neoplatonism as a, as a grid by which to create an understanding of scripture. But there was a problem with that, because the Neoplatonic view of God was that God is unmitigated or absolute power. In other words, what omnipotence 
all power came to be conceived of as it came to be conceived in terms of, of self-expansion and never self-limitation. So that may seem heady and hard to get your head around, but let me just explain to you what, where that leads. What that led many theologians who hold to an all-comprehensive divine decree that accounts for all that happens in the world, it means that God necessarily wills whatever comes to pass. And the problem is if that happens, the flow, that is that all that happens flows necessarily from God, it makes God fully responsible for sin and for evil. In other words, this Neoplatonic vision of God's power as being something that is unmitigated absolute power essentially led some theologians to create a theology that made God responsible for everything. Everything that happens is a direct outcome of his decree or of his will. In fact, Luther himself said this, Martin Luther, if God does not control all things, he cannot necessarily do what he promises. I think that what it does for us is it says, it basically puts it into its context that everything is in God's hand. It actually makes God's hand a little more uncomfortable than we expected. But let me ask you the question. Do you think that Luther meant by that statement, if God does not control all things, he cannot necessarily do what he promises, that Luther in his heart believed that God is responsible for all things? Is that what we would say in regards to Luther's definition of power? I would say no. And I would say that God's hand is less comfortable than we like because there is mystery involved. I, a great example of this is actually found in C.S. Lewis's the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, when Lucy asks Mr. Beaver if Aslan is safe, Aslan being this incredible picture of Jesus, the lion, uh, and, and Mr. Beaver goes, Aslan's safe. He is good, but he is not safe. And I think that there is this contrast that we need to bring together and the, and the writers of the creed understood this, that in order to understand God's power, it must be seen through the lens of his fatherhood, that he is a good father. And as we considered last week, that in him is light and is no darkness at all. He does not cause evil, and this is what I believe Luther meant, but he acts in the midst of evil in order to bring good out of evil. He is not the direct cause of all things, but he is sovereign over all causes and all realities. He is not the sole actor in the story. You are not here by automata. And, if, and what I mean by that is that you are not machines just fulfilling what God, had, God decreed for you to fulfill, because that would, that would be making God responsible for our crummy lives, because we know that we're not all that we ought to be. God is not the sole actor, but all events are under his control. The best picture I've ever come across that gives us a picture of how do we actually bring together a vision of God's power in light of human suffering, in light of evil, because this is the great question. God is a good God. That has been the declaration of the church, that he is a loving God, that he does not desire that anyone should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But how did God allow a guy like Hitler to exist? And those create incredible tensions within our heart, incredible stresses. I actually had a person email me not that long ago asking, how can God be good and loving if he allows such incredible suffering into the world? 
And this is a question that goes all the way back even before Christianity started. This is a Jewish question. This is a, question, this is a human question about God and human suffering. How do we come to a concept of God as good if human suffering exists? Well, the best picture that I have found of this that I think is helpful uh, is actually found in, and I promise you that you have not read this book unless you are an absolute nerd. Uh, and so if you have read it, don't, don't blame me if I mispronounce the words. And, and the book is uh, The Silmarillion. Uh, do you guys know what that is? Some of you are laughing because you are that nerdy. Uh, it's written by J.R. Token. It's the one unreadable book that he wrote. Uh, and, and basically, it's this mythopic uh, tale of the creation of Middle Earth. And, and in the first section, which is the only section that I read, because <laughs> it's so nerdy. It was like it's written in Elven, okay? If you speak Elven today, you've gone too far. <laughs> but in the opening chapter, uh, it's called The Music of the Aner. I don't even like that word, okay? And I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> and there is no other way to pronounce it. I tried getting around it. It's A-I-N-U-R, Aner, okay? I just feel like of all the creativity that came out of that man's mind, he could have come up with a cooler name uh, for his angels. Uh, but here is a creation narrative. And, and in his creation narrative of Middle Earth, Eru, who's the one, also called Iluvatar, isn't that great? Uh, father of all. Uh, first created this group of eternal spirits. I'm not going to say it again. Uh, and, and they're called the offspring of his thought. And now here's the cool thing. Uh, Iluvatar brings these spirit beings into existence, and he shows them a theme, this desire to create a world. It's an expression of his love. And, and what he does is he commands them to make great music. And it, in other words, he sings Middle Earth into existence. Now, Lewis and Token were great friends, and Lewis does the same thing in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you guys have read The Magician's Nephew, Aslan sings into existence uh, Narnia. So I, I think it's a cool little nerd fact. But here's the, here's the thing. When, when he creates this music, he creates it with the help of these angelic beings, essentially, that he's created, until one of them, Melkor, uh, who was given the greatest power in the knowledge, the most beautiful of his angelic beings, uh, broke from the harmony of the music to develop his own song, causing some of the other beings to actually follow him. And it essentially created a war within the music, bringing discord. But the power of the discord isn't that, uh, here's the thing, Eru, the, the, the father of all, he doesn't start over. What he does is he actually starts a new, a new strain of music that actually weaves into it, a new orchestration that weaves into it the discord, overriding the discord, so that not, so all is not lost. So there is limited freedom, but there is still sovereign control. Ultimately, within Token's world, and I would argue within the biblical world, is that God allows for limited freedom amongst his creatures, but nothing is going to stop God from telling his story the way that he wants to tell it. It's still going to end the way that he says it's going to end. And what I can tell you right now about human suffering is that there is no adequate theodicy available from my perspective. And what theodicy is, is an explanation of how God can be good and human suffering can exist at the same time. And people have been arguing about how that works. When Job tries to figure out why he's suffering, does God give him an answer? He does not. 
What he calls him to do is to trust in him. He reveals himself as a good God. And Job says, I've, what, I've, what I've heard with my ears, I have now seen with my eyes, and I repent. He recognizes that it's not his place to question God why something is. What we are called to do is trust God on where something is going. And here's what I can tell you from the scriptural data that we have in regards to God's power. It does not tell us in the Bible where evil came from. When we find our first parents in the garden, the snake is there, and we don't know where the snake came from. But what we do know from the scripture is that wherever evil is found, wherever human suffering is found, God is against it. And he utilizes his church, his people. He uses us to fight against it. And we are told in scripture that it will ultimately be put away. In fact, God uses the evil of the world and he actually takes that evil into himself through his incarnation so that we can say with Dorothy Sayers that whatever game God has been playing, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. So I think that this is important for us to begin here because what I want us to see, if you can go to the next slide, is that God the Father Almighty, there's only one time, and the creed is so brilliant, is there's only one time in the scripture where Father and Almighty is seen in the same verse, and it's in 2 Corinthians 6.18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, it is important to remember that everything that God reveals about himself is directly connected to his relationship with humanity. He's a relational God. This is not something that we are to philosophize about. It's something that we're supposed to know God and trust him, that he is a good father and that his power serves his desire to bring redemption and healing to his creation. The first time that Almighty appears in the scripture, it's not a philosopher trying to grasp an unknowable God, but it is God conversing with Abraham. If I could borrow the words of Robert Jensen, uh, the theologian who just died last year, is that God seems to be a talkative God. He's speaking from cover to cover. And what he reveals to Abraham, he says, I am Almighty God. It isn't a, a, a philosophical idea. It's something that God reveals in a personal manner because he's a personal God. And he says, walk before me and be blameless. blameless. So there are three things that I want us to consider today in regards to God's power. The fact that he is almighty, that he is, that he is omnipotent, he has all power, and that he's sovereign. He has the authority and the ability to fulfill that authority. He has the freedom to do so. And so we begin with this. God's power, I would say first and foremost, is defined by freedom. If we look at these verses right here, we see that scripture itself can describe God as unbounded power. Genesis 18, 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? Psalm 115, three, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42, two, I, I read it last service as job, just because I'm so smart. Uh, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. It's a declaration about God's power. But if I could borrow from Ben Myers from his little devotional on the Apostles' Creed, he says, God's power is not above us, but also alongside us, beneath us and within us. It's not the power of subjection and control, but a power that frees and enables Augustine described literally the divine power as maternal love expressing itself in weakness, but I don't want to get ahead of us there. I'll, I'll save that, that thought for a little bit later. Only God, only a God who is totally free and totally sovereign can relate to a world with total patience and generosity, said Myers. And I think that that is absolutely true. 
God is defined by his freedom. But how is that freedom played out in Scripture? And, and to share with you how the freedom is played out, if we can go to the next slide, I want to share with you six expressions of God's sovereignty that he has the authority and the freedom to do these six things. And I'm borrowing uh, on this slide from the theologian Jack Cottrell, uh, who wrote an amazing book called um, God as Lord. Uh, it's a trilogy on the character and attributes of God. But I, I doubt many of you will go out, rush out and order this. So uh, this, these are the six ways in which God defines, uh, that scripture defines sovereignty. First of all, he has the authority and the freedom to decide. God makes decisions that establishes his purpose, his direction, and his goal of creation. That, that means that, that he, can, he can choose to do it's something he decrees to do. Nothing can stop him from fulfilling his purposes. He has decided and it shall, what he has decided it shall be. But the second way in which God actually exerts his authority and freedom is he causes things to happen. This is another, another facet of his sovereignty. It's called causation. It's the direct or indirect application of power in order to bring about a specific result. He caused the Red Sea to part. He caused Lazarus to rise from the dead. As we saw in that opening verse in Isaiah 45:7, I form the light and create darkness. I make, I cause well-being, and I create calamity. So causation and decision are parts of God's sovereignty. But I would say that if you were to take that old school sort of Neoplatonist view, those would be the only two components of sovereignty. But actually, Scripture declares much more about God's freedom, his sovereign freedom. He has the authority and the freedom also to command. And the fact that he commands is a revelation of our limited freedom. We are free because why would he need to command if you just did what you were wired to do? We're not robots. In fact, I can prove that we're not robots because have you kept perfectly that which he commands? If you raise your hand, go ahead so that we can point you out as a heretic. Uh, <laughs> no, you have not. Uh, if we did not have limited freedom, decision and causation would be, the only would be all that is necessary to express sovereignty. But lordship is expressed through commands. God calls people to follow him. And following him is difficult. The path is narrow and difficult. So he commands, which speaks to the fact that we have limited freedom. That means that we have the freedom to obey or disobey. But he also does what? He permits. That's, that's intense. Someone asked me in the last service, if he permits it, is he responsible for it? I would argue no. God permits. Another expression of God's freedom is his allowance of things to happen without interference. This is not because he is weak, but because he is sovereign and, and is free to choose to do so. Listen to this verse in Acts 14 verse 16, in case you're wondering if scripture supports the idea that God permits things to happen without his intervention. Acts 14, verse 16, in past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. I think another verse that actually shows God's permissive will is actually in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, when it, when it speaks about the uh, wickedness of 
of man. He says, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And what's the result of that suppression of truth, that, that lack of thankfulness, the, the worship and serving of the creature rather than the creator? It says three times, therefore, God gave them over. He permitted them. He said, you want it your own way? I, I gave a message once in Romans called, uh, when God gives up. It's a terrible idea that the wrath of God is not at seen in Romans 1 as God striking us dead with lightning, but it's actually God giving us over, just permitting, like, fine, you want to be your own person? You want to be your own God? See what you make of that. See how that goes for you. And he gives people over to their sin for a time. I will say that for a time. Because another component, yes, he permits, he also prevents he is also free to intervene when he wants. His prevention is seen throughout Scripture. Think of Jonah, who tries to get away from Nineveh. <laughs> Those are not normal situations, a whale swallowing him uh, to, get, to get him back. Uh, God intervenes in a way that is, that, is, that is clearly God's sovereign right to do so. God, God can do whatever he wants to fulfill his purposes and plans in line with his character. We see uh, the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. That is an intervention. God literally blinds him with a light from heaven, knocks him to the ground and says, you're mine. Now, the problem is, is that theologians try to create, some theologians try to create entire theological grids around salvation based upon a singular story. But the Bible is, is, is broad in regards to how God actually works in, in, in regards to his creation. And God doesn't always, I mean, did, were you, did you come to faith by God striking you to the ground with, with a blinding light where you're like, I had no choice. I feel like I had no choice. <laughs> I was smashed. But I know other people that were wooed over time, spent time reading, were, there was people that were sharing the word with them, bringing them to church on a regular basis, and finally there was, it seemed like the decision lay more on their side. I think God is free to do what he wants, and I think it's dangerous to create a theological grid. His sovereignty means he has freedom. And the scripture is complex in how that freedom is expressed. Finally, and I think when I say that he may permit sin for the time, and this is what gives me confidence uh, in spite of this human suffering that is in the world, is that God has the sovereign right, the authority and the freedom to judge. And we are told that in Hebrews 12, 23, that he is the judge of all. There will be a day when every human being will give an account for their lives. Can't escape that. It's part of his sovereignty. He has the authority and the freedom to decide, to cause, to command, to permit, to prevent, and to judge. And I think that's a very helpful grid for us to think about his freedom. But let's, we can't stop there because God's power is defined by his freedom, but his power is ruled by love. It's ruled by love. Now, before I read those verses on that page, I want to just say this about God's freedom ruled by love because all of a sudden when we see decision, causation, commands, permitting, prevention, judging, if it's ruled by love and fatherhood comes first, it actually isn't that far off from, from how we are as parents with our kids. And I want you just to think about that because that limited freedom, uh, that limited freedom is, is, is something that we do as parents. 
Uh, nothing worse than a child that is overparented. In other words, they are never given any freedom because the parent is so afraid of something bad happening to them uh, that they, they never allow them to grow into maturity. And in order for a child to grow into maturity, they have to have some freedom. And that freedom is given to them because the parent loves them and wants them to be able to function like a normal human being someday. Now, I would argue that if you were like me and you came to faith later in life, you know what it was like to actually be born again and to be like a little child. When I was first born again, I was so sensitive to everything. I once had a rule of thumb that I would not watch a movie if my kids wouldn't watch it. So I started taking my son to rated R films at four. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> That may or may not be true. But the point is, uh, is that I had a very black and white vision of grace. I was just like, I can't do this and I can do this. It was very tight parameters. But as I began to grow in my knowledge of, of Jesus and the knowledge of the scriptures, I found that those parameters began to, to broaden. And I found that there were certain things that were more gray than I liked. And it's because it was, it was like the more I grew in Jesus, the more freedom I had. But the more freedom I had, all of a sudden, the more responsible I was for that freedom. And the more responsible I was for that freedom, the, more, the greater the possibility of blowing it was. And I think that any good parent does the same thing with their children. When Hattie was three years old, we lived across the street from the, the elementary school at Abernathy. I didn't send her over to the park by herself at three. That's bad parenting. That wouldn't be safe. Someone could take her. And believe me, I'm a paranoid dad. And so finally, as she is almost 13, I finally let her go to the, no, I'm just joking. But I'm saying at three, I wouldn't let her go to the park. But when she was like, when she was five, I would let her go with her brother. And when she was in elementary school, I'd let her go with her friends. And now as a 12-year-old, I let her walk to school by herself. And it still stresses me out. But I have to give her that freedom in order for her to grow. I mean, it would be horrible if I insisted that I walk her to school every day. Uh, that, that wouldn't, she'd probably like that, but it wouldn't be, wouldn't be healthy. But last night, my son, who's 16, he's a junior, I, I let him go to a concert on MLK, and I was like, I'm still nervous, I'm still stressed out about it, but he's growing into a man, and I have to trust him. I have to give him the space to succeed or to fail. That's good parenting, I think. You know, you may disagree with me. Why would you let him go to a concert? That's another good question, and once again, I'm not here to, to talk about my parenting. Uh, so <laughs> I'm using this as an example to help us understand that God gives us limited freedom because he wants us to grow. He wants us to grow in relationship with him, relationship with others, which means that his power is ruled by his love. And now if you look at these verses, look at Job 37, 23. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power and judgment and abundant justice. He does not oppress. So he's free to do what he wants, but it is ruled by love. Look at Exodus 34, 6. This is what God revealed about himself to Moses. This is the most robust proclamation of God's character, probably found in Scripture. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God sovereign. Is that what it says? Does it say a God omnipotent? Notice that sovereignty and omnipotence, which are often placed at the, at the head by many thinkers today, which I think is wrong and unbiblical, he begins with making this direct uh, declaration that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's power serves his love. Let me be clear on that. Scripture again and again declares 
that God's power does not violate his love or his holiness. 1 John 4, 16, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Why? Because God is love. You know, that's the only attribute declared about God in the abstract. Never says that God is mercy. It says that God is merciful. But it says that God is love. Why does it say that? You ever wonder why it says that? I think that it's easy for us to actually come to an understanding of that when we think in terms, I like what Bart says, that God's power is based upon law, ruled by love. What is, what is the fulfillment of the law? The fulfillment of the law is love. And the reason that it's ruled by law, as Bart puts it, is because God is ruled by the fact that he is a community of love within himself. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. The Father and the Son have always loved the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always loved the Father and the Son. They are a community of love, and everything they do is the outflow of that community. I find that very encouraging. If it's ruled by love, then immediately the question is asked, is there anything then that God can't do? Because philosophers love to ask that question because it's super helpful. Can God say two plus two is five? Well, he could. I would argue that he couldn't. I actually think that there are things that God can't do. Does that offend you? Because look at here. Oh, whoa, it says that he can't do something. Second Timothy 2.13, it was a trick question. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he, what? Cannot deny himself. James 1.13, let no one say, say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. What does this tell us about God? It says that God is basically free to do whatever he wants to do, which allows for limitations. He is limited by nothing outside of himself, but his own nature prevents him from doing anything that is self-contradictory. In other words, God is free to do whatever he wants in accordance with his character, his purpose, and his plans. And he will not violate his character. This is why when someone asks me, well, if God permits sin, is he responsible for sin? Not according to scripture's declaration about God's character. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. How does that work? I don't know. Someday we'll find out. God is free. What this means is that God is free to limit himself. He should not be thought of as a God who can do anything, but a God who can do everything to express and fulfill his loving purpose. His power is his conquering love. And so finally, we can move to the final component, which is the most paradoxical in its statement, that God's power is perfected in weakness. Now, once again, I'm not making that up. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this, but he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for what? <laughs> my power is made perfect in weakness. Now you may say, wait a minute, it's talking about Paul there uh, calling us as his followers to submit to him and to not try to control our own lives. And when we submit, that gives him the freedom to rule through us. That's true, that's true. But the example is followed through more fully because he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Something that is important for us to note is that God's power intends to be manifested through our lives as we yield to King Jesus. But 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul makes it very clear 
that Jesus is the illustration of this, that God's power is perfectly demonstrated in his weakness, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. If I could quote again Dorothy Sayers, whatever game God is playing in regards to human suffering, he has played fair and taken his own medicine. His power is the power, I think, most fully seen in his power to enter into the human house of bondage. And that's exactly what the incarnation declares, that God is so powerful that he is able to actually enter into his own creation, taking on the form of man. He who changes not changed, took upon himself himself something that he was not before and will always be from this point forward. He will always be God looking at us through human eyes, God speaking to us through human lips. He will always be man as God intended man to be in Jesus. And God didn't just simply identify with our humanity by becoming human, but he did something even more profound. He emptied himself. Look at this quote from Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was was hung by the Nazis. He was a Lutheran minister and theologian. uh, And he wrote this in his letters from prison right before his execution. God allows himself to be edged out of the world and onto the cross. What a powerful statement. God is weak and powerless in the world. And that is exactly the way, the only way in which he can be with us and help us. Now, Bonhoeffer is not saying that God is powerless, but he is playing upon God's power being demonstrated through weakness. And really what he's doing is riffing on Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 9 which gives us the great declaration of God's power fully demonstrated to us through the cross of Christ. But Jesus, he emptied himself. Does God have the ability to limit himself? Well, according to Philippians 2, verses 7 through 9, yes, he does. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is king and he is Lord. The greatest demonstration of God's power is found through the cross of Calvary. It is that upside-down kingdom It is a power that is perfected in weakness. And I would say that that same power is available to us. And I want to just close right now with you guys, helping you understand that many of you are experiencing a powerless Christian life because A, you don't understand the power of God. You think of power, God's power is that he's detached. He's too big to be be interested in you. He's too removed, too impersonal. But power as defined by Scripture is the power of God's ability to enter into relationship with you, that he created you for communion with himself, and the power to actually remove the wall of separation that came through sin, sin which he is not responsible for, but he will once and and for all deal with. He's already dealt with it on the cross, but there will be a day when he will fully put away all human suffering when the new heavens and the new earth come. What we have to ask ourselves, are we ready to meet King Jesus, the one who comes in power. And one of the ways that we can know that we're ready to meet our powerful king is to be experiencing his power working through us as we do what? Submit ourselves to him. If you're experiencing a powerless Christian life, may I suggest to you it's possible that you're still trying to be your own God and you realize that there's not much power in it. 
No play on words meant there. It's just there is no power in being your own God. There is no joy in being your own ruler. Maybe for a moment, but it is always temporary. It is always elusive. Our joy is found in being in a right relationship with King Jesus and his power, and he has the power. And when we live by a right understanding that our God has revealed himself to us through his son, and Jesus reveals to us the Father, the heart of the Father, and it is through the heart of the Father that we discover that he is so powerful that he has given us limited freedom without the ability to override his plans and his purposes that he still will bring to a, to a conclusion a story the way that we hope that it would end, which is good. Look at this. What does his power mean for us? If he is the Father Almighty, then he is able. I think that that's a good statement to use. 2 Timothy 1.12, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. Even in the midst of my suffering, Paul writes, I know, I'm not ashamed, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able. I trust in the power of God to complete his purposes and plans, not only through my life, but through creation itself. He is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul trusts God for his powerful ability to finish that which he has entrusted to him. Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus may not remove our suffering, but he is our sympathetic high priest who understands every every ounce of our suffering. He has entered into it so fully that we can trust him and he is able to help those who are being tempted. We don't have to be under the control of sin, constantly defeated. The power of the creator of the universe is available to us when we yield to his lordship. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. I don't know how much the uttermost is, but it seems to be a lot a lot more than we can comprehend. How far is the uttermost? It means that the salvation is pretty complete. It's pretty robust that's available to us. We're not supposed to go through each day wondering, today am I, I'm, I think I'm saved and tomorrow I'm not. He is able because he's powerful to keep that which is his, to complete that which he is planning to complete. He is sovereign and he is able to save you to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But I think it would be inappropriate to end without making it very clear that as, as one who is omnipotent and sovereign, who is free to exercise his authority, which includes his judgment, we need to understand this. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able, he who is able to save and to destroy. We live in an age of grace in which God's power is being demonstrated for the purpose of drawing the lost to himself through his son, King Jesus. But we are coming to a close of that age in which there will be a final judgment and God will exercise his rightful freedom, his authority to judge the living and the dead. And we need to ask ourselves the question, in that limited freedom that's been given to us, will we say yes to the yes that has been declared over our lives in King Jesus already? Or does your life continue to say no to that? Because Jesus loves you. God's power is a demonstration of his love for you. 
It's perfected through the cross of Calvary. Don't say no to him. He loves you. He is able because he is the Father Almighty. Amen.